A quick announcement before we start. With restrictions easing, with the ability to now meet together, outside at least, and train together, the Melbourne Movement Hang is up and running. So if you're in Melbourne looking for a way to connect with other movement enthusiasts, to train together, to learn together, to work together, then send me a message. I'm guiding a group through a weekly class. All levels welcome. So if you're interested in finding more about this movement approach, then send me a message. I hope to see you there. Welcome back to the Passive Hang, guys. It's episode 52. I have the man, the myth, Louis West on the podcast, who is an acrobat, generalist, performer. He's been touring the world for the past 12 years and now settled in Tasmania, of all places. I was very happy to sit down with this man and find out about his approach to training and also now teaching. His approach is unique and there's a lot of deep insights shared in this conversation. We're going to get started. I think we're at episode 52 now and I have Louis West on the podcast and I'm really interested in digging into this one because yeah, I'm just searching around on the internet to try and find out more about you because I've heard your name from a few friends and I was like, okay, I got got to check this guy out. And then I come across this archaic YouTube like vault of all these, all these wonderful videos where I was like, okay, like this guy can really move. What's, what's happening here. But then I think it's from about six years ago. It's like nothing, just bone dry. So (laughs) Anyway, Louis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yep. Good to be here. <laughs> and so in those six years, I guess, have you, what, what, what has been happening in, in the greater world? Well, maybe I'll first start because you've told me some personal news, which is congratulations. You're oh, a father you. now. So yeah. I, guess, I guess that's the biggest change in your life most recently, right? Definitely. Yes. So four weeks old on Tuesday. Um, so yeah, no Monday, four weeks old on Monday. Yes. Amazing time. And yeah, it's been great. It's been, it's been all the things people tell you it's going to be, um, but more of the good things and less of the, the worrying things in our case, which is nice. Yeah. So I guess it's a new, a new chapter for you. Yeah. And you're currently in, Launceston, Tasmania. Yeah, just just outside, so closer to Devonport, about an hour and a half from Launceston. Launceston's our closest, like, I would call it a big city, um, but it's Tasmania, so it's still small. <laughs> and for all those guys outside of Australia, you should look up where where this is. So Tasmania is at the very bottom of Australia. It's not actually part of the mainland, so yeah. I don't actually know too much about what actually goes on in Tasmania. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to fill me in. Yeah. Well, lots of hiking. If you like the outdoors, uh, then it's definitely a good place to be. Uh, but we, we, I mean, in terms of like Australia, we haven't had a COVID case for over a year. So that's, that's definitely a benefit. Definitely a benefit in these times. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so when I go onto your Instagram page, like you've got, got this description just very short and it's like acrobat aerialist generalist and teacher so mm. is that how you go about describing your work and and what you do or yeah what yeah what, i think that's kind of a, a good way as any um the teacher is probably is definitely the most recent addition to that 
but um, I, I tend to like generalist as, as kind of my coverall term. Okay. And so you've been performing for quite some time or that's like your, your career path for how, how many years have you been performing? Uh, I graduated now? from circus school in 2000, December, 2008. And I got my first job in uh, January, 2009 and then have been touring basically full time since then. Yeah. Wow. So that's 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a bit of a, a hazy whirlwind. And so right now, I guess with this change in your life as well, is this where you've sort of, are you, are you starting to shift from performance into more of a teaching role or what's, what's going through your mind? Yeah, well, I was a traveling acrobat for, for those 13 years for two different companies for Circa and Gravity and Other Myths. So both Australian circus companies. Um, and I think that that was basically the best job I could have had as a young man who loves doing circus. I got to travel the world and be with my friends and do a whole bunch of amazing things, um, which was fun. And then actually me and my partner were already planning to kind of settle down and stop and, and try for a kid, which we know has been successful, which is really great. Um, and we just actually, the timing worked out perfectly for us in terms of we were about to do our last tour. Um, and then we got to France and we were bumping into our first show. So getting ready and about half an hour before we were supposed to go on stage and go live, the, the theatre people came in and said, the mayor's just called, we have to cancel the show due to COVID. And then we flew back home and it's uh, haven't been many shows since then. But we were already planning to, to kind of settle down and stop and have a kid. So that's just then what we did. And it, yeah, so it was kind of good. We didn't get that fear of missing out, that FOMO of watching all our friends keep touring and go to amazing places in different countries while we were in Tasmania because everyone stopped. Yeah, so eerie timing, but sounds like it worked out really well personally for you, which I'm I'm glad yeah. to hear. <laughs> I, know, I always feel a little bit guilty about it. I, mean, I know a lot of people have had a really hard year, but I was one of those lucky few who, who it worked out well for. Yeah, well, I hope it recovers strongly from here, you know, a good bounce yes. back. Yes, absolutely. And so if I rewind the clock, maybe even before you did all this circus stuff, back to the young Louis West, mm -hmm. like... <laughs> what were you like as a child? Like, did you, did you want to be an acrobat and do all this sort of stuff? Like, how did this all happen? Uh, yes, I think I did, but I never really, I'm my kind of general outlook on life. I've been lucky enough to kind of just float and do what I'm enjoying at the time. And there always seems to be that next step um, that, that is kind of a logical progression. And then every now and then I look back and go, Whoa, how did I end up here? This is great. And it, it kind of just, there was always that next step that next person to help me out or that next kind of thing to, to catch my attention. So like many uh, young people, I grew up watching Jackie Chan and, and he was kind of one of my biggest influences. So I thought I was going to be a stunt man for a long time. And then I kind of tried youth circus um, and break dancing and gymnastics and trampolining. And, and they, I really loved the physical element, but uh, you know, kind of, wasn't so sure which one I wanted to commit to and, and really enjoyed bouncing between all of them. And then when I was, my mum wanted me to complete year 11 and 12, get my year 12 certificate just in case, cause I had no idea what I wanted to do. And my elder brother, one of them 
was also unsure what he wanted to do. And he was looking at the Circus University, NICA in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. He ended up not doing that. But I was like, oh, oh, maybe I'll do that. Like circus is the thing I enjoy. It's like I'm kind of good at it for, a, you know, for where I was at in, a, in Canberra. Um, and so, you know, that was that next step. And I didn't really think about it from there. I didn't really think too hard about how I would get a job or what company I was going to go for or anything. And then, yeah, so went to NICA and then out of NICA, oh, I had a bunch of friends and little one-off gigs and things. And then uh, straight out of NICA joined Circa, uh, which at the time was pretty small. It was kind of just starting to, mm-hmm. to be known. And then by the end, after I toured with them for seven years, they kind of become what one of the top three Australian circus companies um, and were, were really well known and were doing a whole bunch of really exciting stuff. Wow. So, I mean, I think back to when I was a kid as well, I, I used to watch all these Jackie Chan movies as well. And I thought it was always like really cool that I would love to be able to, to do those things. But, you know, I think maybe I would have tried one or two of them and then just gone, okay, this is, this is pretty difficult and th- this isn't going to happen. So, what kind of went through your mind and were you just, I don't know, are you normally like, okay, when the challenge happens, like some of, obviously some of those stunts and things are very difficult, especially when you're a young kid, have no idea what you're doing. And is this just something that you're like very persistent on once you set your mind to it? Funnily enough, not really. I don't know. Like, again, it just, I, I worked hard, but I never worked super hard at one thing um, for a long period of time. Like I always just kind of, again, like I consider myself a bit of an opportunist trainer in that if I go in and I try to train something and it doesn't feel right and I'm not having fun, then I'll train something else. And there's always something else that is fun and always something else that is interesting and that is the right challenge for the day. And I never consciously did that. It just was like, that was just my nature was that, Oh, this isn't working. I'll do this thing. Oh, that's working good. And cause my, my, interests were broad in terms of circus and acrobatics, but narrow in terms of it. they were mostly confined to that field, but it was like, Oh, I'll juggle or I'll do handstands or I'll tumble or I'll try and break dance. And, and they all kind of just tie together after a while. Yeah. Because normally sometimes when you think about where you just kind of jump between a lot of things, sometimes you don't get to achieve that specific depth, right? Because then you're like, oh, I'm just touching on this, touching on this, and it doesn't happen. So mm. in your case, is it still like you you sat down and thought about processes for each or, or was it very intuitive? You're just like, oh, you know, this, I love this, so I'm just going to just try it. Yeah, that second option, totally intuitive, totally just like, who am I around? Oh, I'm around breakdancers. I'm going to learn to breakdance because that's fun. Who am I around now? Oh, I'm around like... Uh, uh, an amazing circus acrobat came back and taught us for a little bit. So it's like, Oh, I'm going to learn what he's teaching because that's really cool. So kind of just whatever was, was happening. I just try and get better at that thing. And so yeah, slowly all everything kind of slowly got better and better. And I didn't specialize until later really. Uh, so it's more like you still had that very strong supportive environment though. you enveloped yourself within that. And then I guess from seeing that, and then there probably would have been processes from that, that, you would have just imbibed from, from being there. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of good mentors, lots of really great people who kind of helped and guided and shaped and supported me um, along the way. Totally. Yeah. Very lucky to have had, had all that kind of support. 
And did it come like easy to you with a lot of this physical development or had there been particular parts which have been very difficult? Um, I remember when I was started gymnastics and I'd been doing gymnastics for a while. I've got three older brothers and, and one of them is more intellectual and one of them is more similar to me. We're a bit more uh, physical. Um, and when the coaches, the gymnastic coaches were talking to my parents, they said, Duncan, who's my older brother, uh, Louis is more naturally talented, but Duncan is a harder worker. Um, so I, I think I, things did always come a little bit easier to me than to other people. I don't know why, like I had a very active childhood and did a lot of different things, which I think always helps from playing soccer to bushwalking to, you know, grew up on a trampoline, all that stuff. Um, so I think that I was pretty lucky in that sense um, of, of uh, but then also, also slowly began to also work out how to work hard down the track. Yeah. So how come you didn't walk, down like the gymnastics path and rather took maybe the circus path? Yeah, good question. Basically because I went to gymnastics and I really loved it, but they made me cry every session. And I was like, oh, I do this because I really like the feeling and the movements we're doing, but I don't want to cry every time. That's not fun. And so kind of from there found circus again and was like, oh, this is this is the same kind of, I can train and I can have fun and I can learn cool things, but it's got a much nicer community and a much, a much more free kind of way to learn and train. So, so I just kind of, mm. and, and the performance aspect really, really spoke to me at that age as well. Yeah. So what's with that is just, they, they're so fixated on this competitive edge that they just push you so hard within each training session. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a bunch of gymnasts who, kind of um, went from gymnastics to circus and they're often the ones who have uh, not always, of course, but they're often the ones who have a bit of a more difficult love hate relationship with their body and with training. And, and often are the ones who are taking a lot of painkillers and pushing through pain rather than just like learning how to work around it. And it's not the end of the world if you don't do that really hard trick for, for a couple of weeks. Mm. And when you, I guess, turned professional or when you started going to circus school, did that training or relationship to training kind of change? Because I guess then you are training for a performance. You are getting, you know, like serious about things. <laughs> Was there a bit of a shift or did you have to change your sort of mindset with certain things? Um, it, funnily enough, actually, when I got to circus school, we performed less. Th they're kind of, way of working was you work, you train, 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 and maybe you'll do one performance at the end of the year. Whereas in the youth circus, we did lots of little performances all the time. So it wasn't such an intimidating thing. So I'd never had stage fright or was nervous really about being on stage. So the, the main thing that changed was suddenly I just had access to training, a training facility and coaches. And instead of only being able to go and train, um, you know, a couple of times a week or in my backyard, suddenly I had this amazing facility. And so that was the thing. So I, it was just like, Oh, now I'm just going to train all the time because I can. So I, I would go in early and come back early from lunch and train past school hours because not because I wanted to be the best or because people were telling me to, but just cause I loved it. And there, there was not enough time in the school hours to train all the things I was interested in. So I had to train outside of that too. 
And when you talk about training, because I know in, in that tag we're talking about before, you said like generalists. So like what did that training or what does your training look like? Uh, well, back then at Nika, which is probably a kind of good place to start, it was in first year, you, everyone does the three foundations and foundations at this school were uh, handstands, tumbling and flexibility. Uh, so that's what everyone did every day. You had a, a certain amount of hours on that. And then you each chose two specialties, um, which for me ended up being uh, aerial straps, which I chose kind of because, I don't know, that guy's doing it and it looks kind of cool. I haven't really seen it much before, but hey, why not? He's really muscly. I wouldn't mind getting a bit more muscly. Um, and something that my Chinese coach called Frog Pond which never heard of that. No, because yeah, because he made it up. Uh, <laughs> so frog pond was, uh, in his head, he came up to me one day and explained it to me and was like, it's going to be, you know, um, you're going to have a giant hexagon made out of wood and you can like tumble on it and you can turn it this way and do handstands on it. And then you can turn it this way and do like flips into it. No one's ever seen it before. It's going to be great. Also you're going to be dressed like a frog and you have to wear a big frog head. And, and I was like, you know, at that point I was only 18 and kind of didn't really, I was like, oh, okay, sure. Like if you want to teach me, I'll learn. So it, it, in terms of like what I actually was training, it was more tumbling and handstands. Um, and did you ever like use that apparatus or, or perform with that? I performed on it, but uh, to my coach's great disappointment, I didn't choose it for my final showcase act. Uh, and he was very sad about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very disappointing. I, I thought you you were going to say that you did do it, but you did it without without the frog suit. We yeah. So when we did it, we did a couple of small performances leading up to it, and we did it without the frog suit, but with some frog choreography, <laughs> which <laughs> is hilarious. But uh, yeah. So how about now? Like these days, what leads your your training? You know, like do you do you have particular projects or, or thoughts that you're investigating? Uh, I'm still an opportunist. So I still kind of try and I, I'm just drawn to whatever makes the most sense at the time, depending on who I'm around, what surface I'm on, uh, how much time I have, all that kind of stuff. Now there is a, a much greater focus on understanding things and teaching and how to teach people movements. In the past, I was you know, as we kind of talked about, I naturally picked things up a bit faster and kind of just learned without and and had good teachers and bad teachers, but I never paid as much attention on kind of how to learn or how to teach someone else. Whereas now that's a, a really big part. Basically, whenever I learn something, part of me is learning the move and part of me is learning how to learn the move so I can teach it to someone else later. So that's kind of the big... Oh, and I, I guess I should say it's all... Not all, but a lot of it now is floor-based acrobatic um, research and teaching in particular. Um, that and group acrobatics are probably the two things that I spend the most time thinking about. So before, was it more focused on like, you know, I'm, I'm training for performance <laughs> and, and now it's starting to shift towards for sharing for other people? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I still, I never really, even though I was training to be a performer, I, in my head it wasn't so much about training for the performance. I guess it was once I joined Circa, 
but it was more just training because training is fun and exciting and there's always that next thing. And then that would go on stage. And so, yeah, so there was that, there was that kind of stage element in the background, but yes, now it's definitely a bit more how to teach. And when, cause it sounds like you're performing for quite a long time. Like how did you manage your body throughout that period? Because I guess your physicality is so integral to your work, right? You get injured, you're not going to have any work. So did you have any special ways or that you managed volume or recovery or injury management? Um, again, I kind of learned on the job, like as I joined companies and kind of worked out what touring meant, uh, things adapted and I learned from the people around me. So when I went on my first tour, I had a helmet that I strapped to the side of my backpack. And when we got into the airport, I went and found a corner and I practiced spinning on my head. And then when we got, you know, off that 12 hour flight, I went and found a corner and practiced spinning on my head because the airports had these great marble floors that were perfect for, for that. Um, and then about a year later, there was no more carrying a helmet around and spinning on my head in airports because, because touring was suddenly like, oh, this is a lot harder, a lot more energy than I realized. So gradually you pick up the bits and pieces. And I was lucky to have really good role models around, again, to, to kind of show me this is how you have to look after your body and this is what you do if you're injured and this is how you um, restructure a show at the last minute because someone's been injured. So I, I just, I think of it as having a toolkit and it's like, you know, you just slowly accumulate all these different methods and things into the toolkit and learn your body and realize that, you know, when you're young, you heal quicker and things aren't as serious. And then slowly you have a few things that make you re calculate exactly where your body is at and how much you can push it. So, but again, like I never had a strict diet. I never really did reps or sets of things. It was more just kind of whatever's working at the time, talk to people if things aren't working, try something different if things aren't working, but, but I'm not a reps and sets and eat certain things kind of person. Yeah, it's really refreshing to hear because, you know, I'm coming from the other side where it's all, you know, it's all very structured training program, reps and sets, you know, and then yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, there is another way and you've done it. So it gets me, it gets me thinking. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, great. It's always nice to have a few different options out there. But it is interesting going into teaching and going like, oh, do I now have to... Uh, teach people with reps and sets like uh, there's been a bit of learning around that as well yeah that's really interesting process for you i think because mm -hmm. i guess the other flip side of things coming so easy to you then is for other people when it doesn't come so easy then to to understand how to diagnose that it's a big, that's been a big part of my learning. I've been living in a strange world where everyone I'm around is a world-class acrobat. So all the bodies I see are very capable and have all this kind of training and, and process behind them. And so learning what normal bodies are like and, and where, and things that I just totally take for granted in terms of flexibility or awareness or, or, so that's my main thing that I've learned over this time is like, how far can you break something down? Break it down further, break it down further, break it down further. Don't take anything for granted. And so that's a constant thing all the time that I'm still learning and playing with. And it's, 
it's really that, that kind of tinkering has been really exciting as well mm. to break down all the movements. And in terms of like body preparation, I mean, you mentioned back at circus school, you did like these three fundamentals, handstands. Um, what was it? Flexibility and tum- tumbling. Yeah. Do you, do you take that approach as well as seeing those as being like three fundamental building blocks for the work that you do, or do you separate it out in a different way? Um, I definitely have elements of that that I still think of. Like I still think handstands is in terms of the number one cross training tool for most circus disciplines. I think hand balancing is a really great tool to teaching awareness, inversion, balance, body alignment, all it's got all these lessons kind of built into learning the thing. Um, so I think that that's, I don't train handstands anymore, barely at all ever. Um, uh, but I still use them and, and kind of touch them every now and then. Uh, tumbling, I mean, that's kind of become the thing that I do more often than not. So that's kind of still still all there, but I guess in a, in a more exploratory way rather than a like full skills development way. And, and mobility, I kind of have got to a stage where I'm like, I think I'm flexible enough to do the things that I want to do for the most part. So as long as it stays about the same, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. And in terms of like, I guess students that you guide for preparing the body for tumbling, um, do you see like, does everyone need a requisite amount of a certain level of mobility and also strengths that you help guide people on or say that like they should work on work on these sort of tools to, to get there? Um, that's been interesting. I've kind of had most of my students, uh, funnily enough, people who saw my, you know, one of the first things they say to me when I do my preliminary like interview before, before we do classes is like, Hey man, I watched your videos 10 years ago and it was really inspiring. And so now, and that sent me down a bit of some kind of path of acrobatics or movement. And so now it's kind of interesting. I want to learn a bit more from you. And so most of them have quite a, have developed quite a background of physical movement. So for those people, it is, a, it is possible and it is easy to kind of get into some of the meatier things. Whereas because I'm kind of only just started advertising myself as a teacher and, and putting it out there, I don't have as many people who are new to movement. Um, but I had spent the last kind of year developing um, a bunch of what I think of as good foundational movements um, that in my head I was like, okay, if you can go through a yoga class, you should be able to learn these movements to some degree and then start having fun with them. Uh, And so when I take those and I put them on real bodies of people and I have those kind of moments of needing to break things down and adapt things, um, that's been one of the joys as well is going, okay, your ankles don't bend like that. Let's find another way to do it. And and there's always a way generally to to work around it. And I'm not going to be strict on, it has to be like this so much. I'm going to be like, let's find out how it works on your body and with your background. And that's, I'm a big fan of style mm-hmm. and, and doing things with what I call style points. So I, I don't want you to look like me and I don't want you to look like that person you saw online. I want you to find a way that feels natural and, and fun and, and worthwhile for your body. Um, whereas I've kind of seen as movement has gotten more popular, it's slowly getting a little bit also more the same. 
um, which is sad, I think, a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, there's a level of mimicry, right, where you keep on learning in a certain way and you want to just, I guess we always like idolize what we are inspired from as well. So this conversation or this notion of personal style is quite interesting because it's like, at what point is it like the right technique and versus like, I, I do it a little bit off, but it's style. You don't really do yoga with style, right? You do yoga and you try and basically copy the forms exactly. But in breakdancing, style is king. Like mm. everything is like, yeah, you might do the same movement, but do you do it with style? Do you, do you make it yours, even though it's a move that's been done a thousand times by a thousand different people? And that's what's important. And I, I think my kind of breakdancing roots of that kind of thing have really held over as to what I, what I like. And when I see people move, it's like, you know, that's what excites me. It's not seeing the same thing I've seen someone else do in the same style. It's like being surprised and, and seeing personality and, and, and that kind of thing. There's a joy in that. It's very interesting that from one mm-hmm. culture to another, how it's like you mentioned, like from yoga to break dancing, how it can vary so much and be championed in, in one and for the other, it's, more about looking or performing in in a certain way yeah but when we come down to it like when we practice movement you know it is trying to almost herald all forms and and almost go towards this notion of of style right and working with your own body yeah well i guess it depends that's where you got to ask yourself why you're doing it are you doing it as a form of fitness and as you know then it's totally it's a totally legitimate way to do it as like i want to learn these moves because they have inherent value and they'll make me stronger and more flexible. But also, you know, it's like how some people dance, some people dance ballet and some people just want to go out and boogie and that's how they release. And it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why you do it. Or maybe a combination of the two. Like I do that quite often. Sometimes you want to be, try and be perfect. And sometimes you want to be free and fun and they, they inform each other as well. And you mentioned foundational movements or you've been developing these foundational movements what do you view as these foundational movements? Um, well, that's a good question. It's been interesting because slight sidetrack. Now all my targeted advertising is movement courses. Um, particularly in this last year out of COVID, I feel like most, oh, a whole bunch of acrobats and dancers and calisthenics people have, I'm going to go and make an online course. And they've all kind of done the same thing. Of, all right. What are the basic movements? So I have been really interested I try not to look at them too much, but when they do pop up, I go and go, oh, okay, it's interesting. We've both kind of found this is a thing and this is a thing and this is a thing that, that seem like good starting points. The way I've enjoyed thinking about it at the moment, which could all change, is uh, I really like thinking about your body parts. And in traditional tumbling, because my stuff is really acrobatics-based. It's not dance-based. It's not... Uh, traditional or like the new form movement based my background is acrobatics is circus is like that kind of thing so that's where i've kind of started from and then i've also been informed by all these other things so i like to think about body parts generally when we tumble when we are acrobats we use the palms of our hands and our feet and maybe our back and and that kind of they're the things that mainly touch the ground and that's really good but I want to have lots of different options and I want to know that no matter which part of my body is touching the ground, I will be able to move 
in a bunch of different directions, in a bunch of different patterns. Um, so I have started kind of breaking it down into, all right, here are some movements, the, the basic movement that you can use with your bum, with your, the side of your leg, with the backs of your legs, which isn't used so much, with your, your what I call the thorax, so the stomach and chest, that whole area. Again, it doesn't often touch the ground, but if you can utilize it and get comfortable there, it opens up a bunch of doorways with the forearms, with the, the head, with, you know, so all these things. So I kind of just went, all right, if I want to use all parts of the body, then what are the easiest things? And then what are, what are the progressions? And that's kind of where I started from. Yeah, that reminds me of one of the videos I was watching from your YouTube and I recommend lis uh, listeners to check it out is I think it's called Florgasm. And what really struck me from that was I was like, this guy is like just bouncing all over the floor, no matter what touches it. You know, I think there's one thing where you're kind of wriggling around in your back, but it kind of looks dynamic and explosive and you could just leap out from that. And I think you do as well. And then you do like a, a cartwheel, but then your head is the support as you go around. And I was just like, I've never seen that before as well. So yeah, I guess is this, um, is this coming very much from like common from acrobatics to be able to use the entire body or is this like a more a Louis West type of style that is being developed? Um, this is probably where I need to know my history better of, so I, I'm, it's one of those things you think you've made something new and then you see a black and white clip of someone doing it better than you all a long time ago. So no, I would say no, it's generally not traditionally circus acrobatics. Circus acrobatics is still that kind of what was that hands and feet and somersaults and this kind of thing. The, the new circus so in the last kind of 10 years has moved more towards this style of acrobatics of being, of taking from dance and taking from gymnastics and taking from breakdancing and, you know, whatever works, let's mix it together. I think I was kind of at the, at the forefront of that thing becoming popular. Um, but you, I also kind of go, you, I never know my own impact. Like how much would this have happened without me being around? How much did I inform and influence? Um, and I think that I influenced and informed quite a bit, but I don't know. And so when you use your hands and your feet, like, do you see that as people start with just the hands and the, and the feet as the main sort of tools? Or would you say like we're talking foundations here, people need to start getting comfortable with using all different parts of their body from the very start as well? Yeah, second one. So there should be a way of using those different parts of your body straight away. But maybe the very start is you just need to kneel on the hard floor for a little bit and, and have your feet flexed and then have your feet pointed. And maybe that is enough for you to start acclimatizing your shins uh, and then but maybe you've got more because of your background maybe you've got a little bit more uh information in your body about how to use your hands so so that so then you could progress a little bit further and a little bit faster through through that section so you have kind of all these different bars of like where are you in the thorax acclimatization where are you in the the this and this and then that all that all informs itself and and you know, obviously everything is connected, you know, the knee bones connected to the shin bone. So, so as you kind of get better with each of these movements, they bleed into the next body part or they utilize four or five different body parts. And 
and mostly it is like it you, everything uses your whole body and should um it's just kind of where it's focused on yeah i think this um what you call the thorax is really interesting because that is quite a like an unusual part of the body to be comfortable on i think especially mm. as a as a male and you try and roll across your chest and then you know it goes across Crush the groin area <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah yeah because uh, i've been doing a, a bit of floor work where like i don't know what you may call it but like this fish roll where you kind of use your thorax and you, you roll down and you and the first time i was trying to learn it you know i was like <laughs> I, I, I was really really nervous you know i was like oh i was calling my partner over and i was like can you just support me a little bit if, like, it, goes, if it goes wrong so yeah emotionally and physically <laughs> but no, there is like there is there's a lot of fear with that part of the body mm. um not just because of the testicles, um, but that is a legitimate thing that you have to navigate uh, and work out how it works for you to tuck it. Um, but also because it's just a part of your body that doesn't touch the floor very often. And, and it's actually, that's one of my favorite ones to, to start with and explore because you can start really small. Um, and it's really, there's a few kind of leap of faith moments where at some point you kind of just have to trust the preparation in your body and, and fall from a slightly greater height and maintain the arch. To, and if you do that, it's smooth. And if you freak out and you put your hands down, then it's, it's not the end of the world, but it's, you won't be able to do the movement if you, if you get scared. So you have, yeah, leap of faith. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about these like leap of faith type moments and how you, how you make it through, you know, because there's that, level of conditioning or that preparation that you do but you know do you have some mental techniques as well that you have learned especially when trying new skills or ones that you're going oh, i'm not sure if that's gonna happen in the way that i tended to how, how do you yeah. normally approach it very important to have an accurate gauge of your skill level so that is something that only comes with time in the saddle with practice with trying with pushing too far and hopefully the consequences aren't you know disastrous um so so that's a big thing is is working out your own your own skill skill level and one of my the ways i think about it i used to do a used to yeah used to do an act called aerial straps a circus apparatus um and i did an old chinese or the traditional chinese form where there's some big you wind up and then you do some big drops um, and my Chinese coach would just so you do the prep and it starts in a handstand looking at the floor all you're supported by are these things wrapped around your wrists um, and when you're ready you you drop your hands to the side out of the handstand and you plummet head first at the floor and then wow. the, the, the things come off your wrist and you you stop yourself just hanging head first. So that is a, a massive, like, I always thought of it like basically just giving double middle fingers to millions of years of evolution that say, this is a terrible idea. Why would you possibly drop head first at the floor? Um, and for that, I used to think about, I, I'd almost have to switch part of my brain off the, the thinking part and just, you had to go. Cause if you, if you half went and you didn't move your arms quickly, you'd get tangled and you'd get, ragdolled and it would be awful so when you decided you had to go you had to fully commit um and my chinese coach mr lu 
who's a great teacher, um, great man, one of the reasons that circus is where it is in Australia. Um, he just said, all right, so do the prep, do the prep and look at the floor and then come down. Do the prep, look at the floor. And when you're up there and you're looking at the floor and you really want to do it, then, then you're ready. You know, like if you're up there and you're second guessing yourself and you're not sure, then not just come down. And it might take weeks or it might take months. Um, and that kind of drop has progressions where it's basically the same trick, but you take it up a meter and then a meter and then a meter. Um, so each time you go through this process of doing the prep, looking at the floor, thinking about dropping, deciding it's too scary, coming back down. Um, so that's, that's one element is that the knowing, feeling you want to do it. And that is how it works for leap of faith moments. Luckily, most things aren't leap of faith moments. Most things are you have a, a really safe, clear progression and you have, I like to, I always think of it like you're seeing the skyscraper, but you're not seeing the cranes and the scaffolding around it that made it possible to be built. So when you see someone doing a hard trick on Instagram or in a show, you're just seeing the skyscraper, but there is all that progression, all that months of work and, and making it safe and doing it in a, in a controlled environment before you get to, the, to that point. Yeah, I guess it's this difference between actual risk and perceived risk, because when it's a new experience as well, you have no idea about what's going to happen. It's like when you're learning handstands for the first time and then suddenly you learn how to like cartwheel out of it and the whole thing's changed. Then you're like, yeah. Oh, this, this is easy now. Like this yeah. is fine. <laughs> your element's gone. And in circus, particularly um, youth circus, we often talk about safe risk, which is, you know, an oxymoron, but, but it, there, there is, you can still do it. You can have something that feels dangerous, but is safe at the same time there are stakes there, but, but you, you know, you can mitigate the, the consequences as well. And that's one of the, the great lessons of circus for kids, I think is, is that safe risk and learning where your limits are and learning to trust yourself and other people. And I wanted to ask you about floor surfaces as well, because I think this is a big one. And, you know, sometimes I practice on the hard concrete and I'm like, Oh, you know, it does something to you as well. You don't want to commit as much. So do you also say, think about floor surfaces in a particular way for you know like progressive overload and getting yourself more comfortable yes big um lots there's lots to think about even in that deceptively simple question uh i've been lucky enough that most of the companies or, or all the companies i work for have been acrobatic based and so in all the shows i've done except for maybe one or two, we have Acromat, which is high density foam, which makes everything a lot nicer. Like um, when I was break dancing, it was on concrete and hard surfaces and dancers obviously do everything on, on uh, hard floor and, and now with parkour and a lot of stuff, that's the most accessible floor is hard. Um, so that's one of the other things I've had to kind of learn and teach is adapting the movements I do to a hard floor and how to do that safely and in a way that you can do it every day and forever and make it nice because hard floors are very honest is how I think of it. It's like you do something wrong. They're going to tell you straight away. They're not going to sugarcoat it. You're going to feel it probably immediately and probably for the next few days. Um, so when I, again, but when I was talking earlier about being an opportunist floor surface is one of those things. If you're on a slippery floor, that's really hard. 
I'll be playing a lot more with sl things that slide and, um, you know, maybe entrances to and from handstands that, that are a lot smoother and glidier. Whereas if I'm on uh, a sprung floor, which I don't like using for the most part, I think it's a really useful training tool, but it's really hard to carry around a sprung floor whenever you want to train or perform. Um, that, that will be very different. And then there's all the levels in between of the, the different softness. Grass is great. It's kind of a, a halfway point, but it's not very slidey. So maybe you can do a little bit more dynamic stuff on it, but it'll be different. Yeah. So do you recommend like for people starting out, like to seek out a specific type of floor surface or like you say, like just be opportunistic, whatever you've got, work with it. Yeah. Depends what you're doing it for. If you're, if you want to learn harder moves though, yes. Find access to a softer floor with mats with, uh, you know, ideally with a foam pit, which obviously is not always accessible, but if you are pushing, because again, one of the things I talk about is vertical skill, which is like skill progression, backward roll, backflip, backsault, double backsault. You know, it's very kind of the thing gets harder. Mm -hmm. um, if you're doing that kind of training, then you should be using all the support you can to make that safe. So that's spotters, that's guidance, that's mats, that's foam pits, that's lunge lines. If you're training horizontally, if you're training kind of more creative, more creativity and that kind of stuff, then you might not need soft floor and that kind of stuff. It might still be useful at points, but maybe you, you totally could just do it all on a hard floor in a safe way with the right progression. So it, it depends what you're doing it for, what you have access to, um, all that stuff. Hmm. Can you expand a bit more about this vertical versus horizontal type of development? Yeah. Um, one of the ways, I guess there's a, there's a few ways to attack it. Um, I heard Ido talk about it in a way I really enjoyed, which was the three eyes. When you're talking about skill progression, uh, skill mastery, you learn things in isolation, integration, improvisation. Uh, so you learn things and you do them just by themselves, focused on the trick, and then you put them in a set sequence or a set series of movement patterns. Um, and then ideally, once you've really got the trick nailed and in your pocket, you can be in the middle of anything and that trick is available and accessible to you. Um, I really like, I've really enjoyed um, improvisation. Like I kind of have gone through that whole, over the course of 15 years or whatever, my whole training has also been a bit like that, learning things in isolation and then a big phase of integration. And now I'm really jamming on improvisation and freedom. Um, but in terms of, sorry, that's kind of a slight deviation, but horizontal versus vertical, um, skill progression. One is more, you've already got all the tricks that you're working on for horizontal. And now you can try variations of them. You can try them with a different leg shape, or you can try them a little bit higher or a little bit lower. So the the risk is not that great. Um, physically because you're working with moves that you know and understand. You're just trying to deepen that that depth of understanding of them and find new entrances and exits and, and the linking moves, all that kind of transitional linking, um, discovering, playing, that's all horizontal skill development. And then vertical is I'm here to train hard skills and get better. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're quite different mindsets. Yeah. And 
that's a really nice way of of putting it i think and you, i can sort of see in my head that's like you know there's you can maybe concentrate on one pillar for a while to go more specific to really like upskill in that area but then or you can even balance it at the same time with then doing something maybe more horizontally which is completely new to you and and, and you suck at right but that's also developing you in a in a different sort of capacity um and so and you meet these you meet these people like i've taught um i don't want to pick on i sound like i'm picking on gymnasts but i've, I've taught people often who have gymnastics backgrounds who are very vertically skilled you tell them to do round off flip salt and they will, you know, they can fire that button, but you ask them to do a cartwheel and do something different with one of their legs and their brain melts at their ears and they don't understand. And, and I personally, like in terms of like being a generalist and a mover and really understanding movements and being able to play with them, I find that so um, limiting and, and a bit sad. Like it's also amazing because that's how you get to those incredibly high levels of gymnastics as well. But I feel like hopefully those really high level gymnasts would have a bit more um, adaptability. But, uh, but yeah, but then you also get kids who can barely do a cartwheel, but they can also do like four or five different versions of a cartwheel if you, if you tell them to, to do something different with their arms or their feet. And so it's kind of really interesting seeing juxtaposing those two people next to each other in the same class or how different brains work. I think it's like when you become so habitual in certain patterns, right? It's like almost becomes like walking, I guess, for some people when they practice the cartwheel in such a particular way that to break out of that, like if you try and change your gait, it's like super difficult, right? Because you don't even think about it. So yeah, I can see how that would happen. Mm. And I guess in terms of, do you have a, a thing in mind in terms of like foundational tricks, say for, for a lot of the people listening in, they are doing like their handstands and gymnastic strength, that sort of thing. And if people wanted to get more of a base in acrobatics, where would you say that their time would be best well spent? What sort of tricks or moves would they get a lot of gain out of in, in starting their journey? Um, this is a, one of my, one subject that I enjoy talking about. And one thing that I'm kind of endlessly fascinating with is names of tricks. So again, we're going to go on a slight deviation, um, which is, you know, those standard tricks all have very standard names. I can say cartwheel, we're picturing the same thing. Probably. I mean, obviously you can end facing forwards or sideways or backwards. Um, so even with that, there's, there's kind of variation, but with all these things that have been developed or kind of brought more to um, us, the public consciousness, or at least in the movement community, um, they all have different names. And in circus, you know, there, there are a bunch of standard tricks that have different names because people make them up and, change things and they're like, Oh, you know, what works for me? And I love that. I love all the different names. I love finding the right name for the movement where you're like, what do we call this? And you, you say something and you're like, yeah, that totally sums that up. That's perfect. Um, so I, I'm all, I'm slightly annoyingly constantly tweaking the names of my tricks to try and find the right ones. Um, so I can say a bunch of things, uh, but they probably wouldn't make much sense because they're the names that I've been using for my tricks, um, which again is interesting in, in a little way. It's like pushing a, a little message in a bottle out into the ocean because I name a trick, what I think is an appropriate name. 
and then it, and then that person might go and talk to someone else, talk to someone else. And then maybe a few years down the track, someone will be talking to me and they'll say, oh yeah, I learned reef knot the other day. And I'm like, oh, interesting. I can track a little bit of your progression from what name you call that trick. Um, so it's kind of annoying. It's useful to have standardized names, uh, but it's, it's fun to have uh, a weird mix of, of names. So what do I actually think is useful um, for people who are getting more into acrobatics? Uh, look for someone who's teaching movement i think it's a you know uh it all depends again on what they want but handstands are good cartwheels are good learning to roll is good um so there's a there's a movement in contemporary dance like a bum roll or a sit roll where you you go down one shin and across your bum and stand back up on the other side that's really useful because that is a really soft way into the ground that you can use on hard floor um and if you have that pathway accessible then you can enter and exit from it in a whole bunch of different ways and it's going to be really safe. Um, and you can immediately start playing with it horizontally. So sit rolls are good. Um, like uh, I call it a Kate Winslet where you, you do a side cobra and then you roll to the other side, which is, you know, uh, you pass through that draw me like one of your French girls, Jack from Titanic. <laughs> just someone in the class. I was like, I don't know what I call it. Someone said Kate Winslet, and I was like, "Great, that's what it's called from now on." Um, <laughs> but I can say you can, yeah, it works in this way, yeah. And then, yeah, yeah but knows, then if you, maybe if it you becomes the Kate Winslet. Winslet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's a bunch of different moves, but I think it's one of those things where it's it would be easier to show you a lot of them than than try and describe them. But yeah, yeah, and that accessibility that you're saying like along the side of your body with the shins, I think that's a really interesting concept because, you know, we do become very conditioned in, especially I, I think outside of acrobatics to only use like the, the hands for, for support with the legs, you know, like I practice a lot of ground movement and coming more from a capoeira base and it's mm -hmm. all like, you know, hands and feet and that's it. You're not allowed to touch the rest of the body on the floor. Right. You know, get, you're, you're, keep the suit clean so uh, yeah when i have tried some other floor work stuff it feels really like uncomfortable for me as well you know like when i do like the shoulder roll and i'm like how how does how do you become soft because there's there's bone there you know like yeah. it, it feels like do i have to like kind of grind my bone back a little bit and then that will become a bit softer you know how, how does that development happen um it, oh man, it all happens at once. You know, it, it all, if you're training the movements and you're training them in different areas and different times and it, it all trains at once. So yes, you will. At, at some point there is a small degree, I think of like not killing the nerves, but of like kind of acclimatizing, like developing a callus or that kind of thing. But that should only be a, a small fraction of it. The main thing is technique. And the main thing is finding a way to work with your body. Um, so, so, uh, but finding the ideal pathway is difficult. So that's why you go through all those build up steps and slowly, you, you know, you will discover, Oh, if I do it and I enter this angle rather than this angle, or if I brace my arm slightly more, it is less painful. And that comes back a little bit to the, the hard floor being very honest in that, you know, learn, I like to learn on a softer floor and then every now and then take it to a hard floor to kind of see how, uh, how good it actually is. Um, but but I won't do my 
my hardest tricks on a hard floor um, because I value <laughs> my body and my knee cartilage. And when you start with learning a trick or when you, when you teach people, I guess, these days as well, do you also start with like, this is how to also bail out safely from it or to, to manage that risk? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a big one with group acrobatics as well is like, you talk about what you're trying to do, your ideal. Um, and then you talk about what are the one or two or three, depending on how complex the movement is, what are the most likely ways for it to fail? And how do we make sure that if it does fail like that, it's still safe. Um, so, so yeah, you, you definitely want that thing. And that's, that's more for high level things with the lower level things. You can generally make them safe by doing them really slowly and doing them in segments. Um, but once you get to the, the higher tricks, the harder tricks, the, the more dynamic tricks, then you, yeah, you kind of have to kind of be aware of and account for those um, dangers. Yeah, because there's a bit of like the just you're in the air moment, right? And sometimes in the air, maybe you're rotating in a in a wrong sort of way that you're going to land and it's going to be sort of hard. So, that, And you don't want to be in that moment. You don't want to be thinking, um, oh, what do I do now? You want it to have at least be some form of automatic or at least have one thing that, you know, if you're a flyer, um, you know, someone in a group acrobatic trick and it's falling, maybe your one job if it falls is I'm going to be really tight and not stick out my arms and feet because then I'm really difficult and dangerous to catch. So my job as a flyer, if it all goes pear shaped is to just be, be tight and trust the people are going to catch me. Um, yeah, I guess, cause in that moment, you know, you don't have time to think sometimes, right? You just get a instinct. Yeah. yeah. So it's also just like acclimatizing that, that reaction that you need to prepare for. You almost need to practice that beforehand, right? So that to be like, okay, that's the shape or that's the thing that you just need to do to, to be safe. Yeah. And it changes, you know, everyone will have a different preference. Like when I'm flying tricks on people, a lot of the time what I say to them is don't try and catch me. Don't try and, lower me down really because I'm really comfortable falling and I'm really aware of um, my body and what's going wrong. And the safest thing for me is for you to just get out of my way and let me deal with it. Um, Cause I've had instances where people have tried to spot me and maybe they've grabbed onto a leg and that stopped me being able to put my foot down. And so, so then it's, it's suddenly this, this information that I can't deal with quick enough. Mm. Whereas other people it's like, I have no idea how to fall off something this high. I'm, really scared. It's like, great. Don't worry about it. If it happens, be still. And, and this, these people are responsible for your safety. Um, so, so yeah, you got to adapt, adapt to who, who it is and what it is. And how do you approach normally taking like a big fall then? Like, is there a, a specific way that you've learned how to take impact and, and roll out of it or, you know, use whatever body part to soften it? Yep. Um, it's one of those things that's quite hard to describe, but, in general, it's like uh, try and get a foot to the floor. If I can get a foot to the floor, I can use that to, to, to redirect the momentum into a roll, ideally. So, so redirecting force into a roll, very effective. Um, if you can't roll because you're falling at the wrong angle or you're not, not at a, an orientation where you're able to do that safely, then you're then you want to disperse the force into the floor. So that kind of classic, like you're going to throw your arms out wide and slap the floor, or you're going to slap a foot down or you're um, 
yeah, kind of going to push that that into the floor. Uh, relax, huge one. I, like I think this is this is something that's very hard to teach, but you know, I think I got it from jumping on the trampoline in my backyard. And I remember being, you know, double bounced or whatever. And there's this moment in the air where you're like, Oh, okay. I can tell that I'm going to land on the springs or on the side of the trampoline or off the trampoline. And some people naturally panic and can't think. And, and I always, for some reason, be very calm in those circumstances. And even if I'm like, this is going to hurt. Like there's at least some part of my body that's like, unless I can get my foot to here. Um, so, so falling a lot and getting used to it, falling in a bunch of different ways. Um, but I've had some pretty gnarly stacks uh, and mostly I've come out pretty good. The biggest one recently or recently is a couple of years ago now was we were doing a four high. So that's four people standing on top of each other in a mm-hmm. show had never fallen we'd done literally hundreds of them and then this one particular show it fell and i'm the third person so i'm not the top top but i'm right near the top and everyone went to catch the person at the top which is good which is what they should do mostly um but no one caught me so i i basically Mm. fell flat on my back uh from a bunch of meters up in the air oh wow um but got up and did the rest of the show. It was at the very start of a show. It was very, very sore the next day. Um, and that video is on Instagram, actually. There's a kind of grainy, not very good quality version of it on Instagram um, because it was a very good lesson. Uh, but it was also nice to kind of, yeah, there are ways to fall. There's an awesome clip on YouTube of a skater uh, in the X Games going up super high and then smacking straight into the ground and his shoes pop off, but he, he gets up and walks away and it's kind of, man, learning how to fall is very important in those instances. Yeah. And do you have any tips for people doing that? Is it, is that just like, is there specific falls that you should practice? Like just jump off some things and try and land in a certain, certain way. Yeah. You, yeah. So just start very small and learning some of those basic movements. I guess it goes back a bit to your question of what should you learn? you're interested in learning a bit of acrobatics. So being comfortable rolling and cartwheeling and those things, cause they, they can turn into safety maneuvers if, if need be. Um, but you do want them to be pretty automatic. So you've got to practice them a bit. There's also a bunch of work you can do with kind of being off balance and, and playing with like, okay, I'm going to get as low to the floor as possible. And I'm going to tip a direction and then I'm going to work out how to make that soft. And then I'm going to get a little bit taller and I'm going to do that same thing again and kind of, explore your different different um you know different options of falling and if i fall backwards i do this if i fall forwards i do that um and then i had a russian coach who used to get us to practice falling by someone would hold your hands and someone would hold your feet and you'd be belly up to the roof uh and they just kind of like chuck you onto a mat (laughs) and you had to you had to twist like a cat and land on on all fours and he was like this is falling practice um so, so there are some strange ways like that as well. But like anything, if you want to get better at falling, fall more um, in a lot of different ways and in a, in a safe progression. Yeah, I really like that thought of staying, uh, starting from just low to the ground and then you, know, you can put whatever force into it in different directions until, yeah, I guess like you stand or even jump a little bit. Um, yeah, and you might find that for a really small fall, for example, it's, it's okay to put your hand down 
and that will you'll be able to catch yourself and absorb one of the the big rules um just while i remember going back to that you know advice for falling massive piece of advice that's really hard to rewire in your brain often it's the the most safe thing is not putting your hands down that's how that's the classic skating injury is that your board goes out the front you put your arm back you over rotate a back salt you put your arm back that's how you break wrists and elbows and that is now totally a habit for me if i fall over backwards my arms are in front of me and i take all the impact on my back and and then let it disperse mm -hmm. um and it's way better even if it's slightly in, you know you don't want to do it every day but in terms of a like one-off scary thing it's yeah you're going to come out of it better than putting an arm back yeah because it sounds almost a bit counterintuitive right like i'm going to land on my back you know people are so protective totally. of their back these days but you know when you've when you talk about that, that reminds me of like in grade nine, I think I had playing soccer an injury where I landed and I put out my hand and then I broke a piece of my elbow off. And that, yeah, that, it just happened like that. I didn't fall that heavy, but you know, yeah. I think it's just that, that support just, it's not very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Not in that sense. Yeah. And what about on the mental side, like say, you know, that, that big fall that you had, do you have anything that runs through your mind, which then just goes, you know what, well, I'm just going to keep on going because sometimes, you know, when you have these big falls, it hurts as well. It kind of mm -hmm. then like jilts you a bit. Right. And you're like, oh, I don't really want to approach that same trick or do that thing again. Yeah. You mean uh, kind of in the longer term with that specific trick and, and training it? Yeah. Like how do you, yeah. how do you normally overcome that? Um, Luckily, it hasn't happened too often. With that one, that was kind of probably the, the biggest, scariest version. So there was definitely a big part of me that was like, is this worth it? Like, I, don't, I really, really don't want that to happen again because that sucked and could have been way worse than it was. Um, so is it worth it? Do, I, do we put in the training again to do that? And it took us a good couple of months. I'm going to say like probably three or four months of, of training it again, back in, in safety lines. Uh, and we did put it on stage a little bit more and then, and then I stopped touring that show. So I didn't have to do it anymore, but it was a, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a big kind of interesting time to reassess that. And as I've got older, those things are way less important. And now it's like, right, it's not important at all. Um, it's important that you can move your body and walk, <laughs> um, which is obviously more important at all stages, but, but it just kind of those, those equations work out slightly differently. Um, so, so again, you kind of recalculate the risk and you reevaluate how safe it is and you, um, you go and you either do it again or you don't. And, and that's kind of depends how much you want it. Uh, yeah. Because it's always a bit of a funny mind wrestle, right? Cause you don't have to do any of these things, right? And like, and you can be yeah. like completely risk averse, but then there's this part of you as well, which is kind of like, oh, but I want to try and, and do it and find my potential of doing yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. It becomes a little bit of a personal test and a, and a like, yeah, a, a really introspective moment of, of working out why you want it, what it means to you. Is it important? Is it, is it a point of pride? Is it like, you've got to prove to yourself that you can, is it, you know, all these things. Yeah. And apart from like foundational movements, which, you know, might have all these different names that or might vary from 
person to person as to what's most important. Do you have any maybe like key concepts that say when you take a workshop, maybe that you focus on that everybody uh, that you think is of benefit to everyone when they approach this field? Yeah. Uh, I really, this, I like this. I like, I like trying to think of key concepts and I like trying to think of, I read a book recently called range, which is all about generalizing over specializing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it, I really like that. It spoke to me in a bunch of different ways. One of the things that I really enjoyed about it is he, there's a whole chapter on analogies, um, and kind of trying to explain things through metaphor and through, through that kind of simile and all this kind of other ways. And that thinking of things through metaphor often can be a breakthrough moment or so I, I try and collect metaphors and similes and ways of explaining some of the things that I have found useful is that, um, I like making curves out of straight lines. Um, so in our body, we have a lot of kind of straight lines, our forearms, our shins. Um, if I straighten my elbow, it's straight, you know, from my shoulder to my fingertips. Uh, and that's really nice. They're, they can make great uh, aesthetics and that kind of thing. But the floor is also a big straight line. And if two straight lines meet, it's going to splat and it's going to... Um, not be very nice feeling. So one thing should curve and the floor can't curve. So you, you've got to find ways to make curves throughout your body. So exploring everywhere, you know, that same thing of like, how do you, uh, you know, you want to be comfortable with every part of your body. A lot of that is knowing how to make it curve with every part of your body or with, mm. with different segments of your body. Um, so there's a, one of my favorites is, I think I mentioned earlier, the backs of the legs. It's like, well, how do you make a curve out of the backs of your legs? But you can, if you use the rest of your body, you can stand with your feet together and you can fall backwards and you can take that into a roll, um, without bending your knees and do it really softly and smoothly. If you know how to create the right tension and angle and momentum with your torso. Uh, so curves out of straight lines is a big one. Um, and that is not just with your body, but it's also with movement uh, as a whole. So a lot of the time in regular gymnastics and regular acrobatics, the things we learn go in straight lines. And, you know, you go to a tumbling class, you go to a circus class. When you do tumbling, everyone lines up and you do your movements in a straight line. That's really useful. But a lot of the movements we learn and if we're going to start sequencing and making things feel nice and finding good ways to connect things. A lot of the time it works better if you start to curve the whole sequence or, mm. or one of the movements or so, so this works really well, making curves out of straight lines, you know, rounding off the edges. You don't want right angles. You want, you want smooth curves. So, so that's kind of one of the biggest ones I've found useful that I enjoy. Yeah, I really like that analogy. You know, it makes it makes sense to me, especially mm -hmm. like with that when a straight line meets a straight line, and especially if it's like perpendicular, you know that then that's going to go. Oh, that's going to hurt the most. You you yeah. want to avoid that that situation. Yeah. Um, and even when I've been practicing like a lot of the more ground movement sort of flow, I know at the start, yeah, you really emphasize this one lateral direction I think at first because maybe that's like the lowest in, in the complexity until you maybe take a video of yourself and you're like why am I just moving horizontally like <laughs> yeah. all the time and it kind of like doesn't make sense and then you start going oh okay like now you can 
it's like the options, right? Then you can go in in any sort of way, and it feels yeah. better as well when you do it. It feels more yeah. organic. Feels more organic. Feels more freeing, and that's something both with performance uh, and with social media. You know, it, it is interesting to have an idea of where the front is. You know, where where is the audience? Like, what is the best angle for this sequence for the audience to really see it and enjoy it? Where is the best angle to put the camera so that Instagram or YouTube or whatever can can see that the best angle, you know, show you good side. Um, but if you're just training for yourself, and then often it is, it's really nice to to not have any front and to just kind of work out the nicest pathway. And do you always make sure that for every movement that you know, is there like kind of like this tick list before you're like, oh, all right, I've got this one in the bag. Like you need to be able to perform it on each side and do it in a certain way before you're like, okay, yeah, now it's the next stage. Yeah. It varies, varies from trick to trick. Um, some, there's not like a set checklist, uh, but there is definitely a like, okay, now I feel like I understand that. Like, can I do it high? Can I do it low? Can I, one of my favorite games is when you learn a new move, try and link it to a bunch of different entrances and a bunch of different exits. So, so try and do a backflip into it and then try and do a backflip out of it and then find a different way to link a backflip in that trick or whatever. And so once I kind of have found a few different ways into and out of a movement and can, can play with it height length, um, all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I understand it is probably the, the key thing. Then, um, then I'm happy to kind of put it in the toolbox, put it in the pocket, know that I can pull it out if I need to. This is a good, I guess, uh, segue into skill acquisition and talking about like do you when you think about okay like i'm going to teach this person this new skill like do you have a set sort of process or way which you like introducing it to them and going okay this is how we should think about approaching acquiring this skill yeah one of the questions i've been asking um because as i said earlier like my students have been at a fairly vast array of skill level and background. So, so often the first thing I do is I'm like, here's a trick. I call it this. It looks like this. And then I'll do it because I, I like to demonstrate and, and do things while I teach. And then I'll say, have you done that trick before or a variation? And, and then they might say, yes, they might say, no, they might say, Oh, I've done something similar, but not the same. Um, and then depending on their response, I will either go, okay, you haven't seen it before. We're going right back to the beginning and I, we're going to break it up in steps. If they're like, I do something similar, I'll say, show me. Um, and then depending on how clean and controlled it is, I will either say, let's go back to the beginning and work on some steps. Or I might say, Oh, that's really close to what I was looking for. Here's a few tweaks. Um, or I might be like, Oh, great. That's perfect. And let's do the next progression because there's the next, there's always the next thing. Right. So, Here's, here's a new sequence, here's a new way in, here's a new way out that you might find fun because it's already in your in your pocket. Yeah, and do you have your particular way of like diagnosing tricks or when tricks don't quite go as as planned or when you know someone submits it and you're like, oh, you know, that does that doesn't seem like what is supposed to be intending? It's re it's it's actually it's maybe becoming my new obsession is diagnosing tricks. Um because it's so, yeah, you, you develop that eye, right? You get better at looking and seeing what's what's going wrong and what's not. So 
every now and then there'll be a shortcut. Like something I've learned recently from teaching is there are a lot of tricks um, where people struggle to get from their hands to their feet in balance. Like they might get up and then fall back down. They might not, you know, not quite have enough momentum or whatever to get to standing. And I was seeing this in a bunch of different tricks. And as I was diagnosing it, I realized, oh, they all have a common theme, which is if your hand and your foot are too far apart, it's really hard to get your weight on top of your feet. If you move your hand and foot close together and, and arch more, make a curve a bit more, you'll find it easier to, to lever up onto your feet. And then suddenly that unlocked a whole bunch of different ideas and drills about, okay, it's too long. It's too wide. That's why it's hard. So maybe it's a flexibility thing, but more often than not, it's a, it's a technique and a, um, uh, cueing thing. And it's become quite frustrating for myself because now I suddenly go, I think everyone can learn all these things. And if I, if I try and teach someone something that I know I can see that they're capable of it, but they can't do it. And I, you know, you're constantly tinkering. You're like, well, what about if you try it like this? What about if you try it like this? And so that's, that's part of the thing is like diagnosing, tinkering, finding the right drill. Cause it's like, I can see you can do this movement. You just, we just haven't found the right way to approach it yet. So my eye and my drills, I think are getting more refined and better, but there's still, you know, like always, there's a long way to go. And, and you see the same mistakes over and over. Like people are pretty similar. We often have tight shoulders or um, are scared of this or, yeah. So, so you do, my friend used to say, same chook, different head. It's like, you know, it's, yeah, that kind of thing. It's the same problem on a different body. And, and sometimes, you know, every now and then you find a cue that is really effective at fixing something. And sometimes it's like, still haven't found it. It's out there somewhere. I know it is. You just got to find it. Yeah, the magic cue that's gonna just make everything click. That's, that's what right. I'm, I'm always searching for that one. Yeah, yeah. I feel I treat all my students a bit like guinea pigs. Sometimes it's like I'm just gonna try this out, uh, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, that nah, I just thought about that. I thought it was gonna work, didn't work. Um, let's try this other thing. And we've talked about flexibility before, but what, what about this concept of strength? Like, you know, to uh, to get beyond, you know, like this beginner sort of stage to acrobatics, intermediate, like how important is strength, strength development in training this area? Um, I feel like I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. Uh, just because it's, again, like it's never been all my, basically all my strength has come from doing the things. I, I haven't really done much supplement supplementary strength training. I've done almost no weights. Um, and so again, I've kind of just identified my own weaknesses and if just doing it more hasn't solved it, then I might, I might occasionally go and, and augment with, with some, some weights and stuff, but, but it's not something that I feel super equipped to talk about. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. But obviously it's worked for you as well, right? Like this doing the thing has conditioned the body in, a good enough way to allow you to to do the thing right yeah yeah generally it's yeah it's worked pretty good yeah because on the other side when we talk about like generalist as well there's a the term thrown around like generalist strength training and then equipping you with the strength to to do whatever you need to do as, know, as well like right is that like functional fitness and that kind of stuff yeah or even like a lot of the using the rings body weight strength training you know there's like common thought that if 
if you train in this sort of way as well it sort of prepares you maybe a bit more adequately for a wider topic of things to then go and apply yourself into then maybe say when you do and just focus on just isolated weight training maybe it's to do a body awareness thing or something like that yeah 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 totally because it's a whole bunch of it is the pathway like you know if you have the most efficient pathway you're going to need less strength and you're going to be able to do more if you can find that but there is a certain base level of strength that is going to be a safety net and uh, allow you to access more things. Let's talk about warm ups. Do you have any like favorite warm up routines? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the warm up has been an interesting one, kind of for myself. You know, from being young and not warming up at all because I didn't need to because you're young. To, to doing like, okay, getting to circus school and they did a bit more like you'll run around and then you'll do some static stretches maybe. Um, and then recently I've actually been training jujitsu, which I've been loving, um, but their warm up is often run around in a circle, do some bear crawls down a mat. Um, I don't want to have to think about the next thing. So we do the same warm up every day and that's good enough. Um, I have found recently that the most effective way for me to warm up my body uh, well and quickly because if you're doing hundreds of shows a year and you have to warm up, you do sometimes get sick of it is, uh, stuff that I picked up from Ido Portal and one of his students, uh, Juan, who also lives in Melbourne. Uh, and that's just like a lot of like body circles, like lubing the joints, like moving, just moving basically like trying to wake up my body and my mind and, and kind of do a quick scan, mostly through these kind of joint, waves and circles and then if anything stands out as being sore or needing a bit more attention then i'll dip into my toolbox and bring out a few of the things that i know are good for that you know my my injuries aren't huge but they're like old friends at the moment you know it's like ah yes that one's back or whatever so dip into my toolbox bring out the things that i know help each each particular sore sore thing. And if nothing is too sore um, or needs too much attention, I'll do a little bit of like uh, windscreen wipers, like moving my legs side to side. And I like to do some scorpions lying on my stomach and like leg over the top, a um, couple of handstands. And then, and then kind of just, that's about it really from there. It's like start slow. And, and uh, after a couple of minutes, usually pretty happy to, to be moving and doing harder things. And did you have any, I guess, pre-performance like routines or rituals maybe to get you to switch on mentally before you went out on stage? Uh, no, not really. Different companies had different things. There was a while where the only makeup we had to put on at the company was eyeliner. So just like kind of putting on eyeliner became a little bit of a ritual. The companies I've worked for have a, have generally used a focus thing. Um, so it's like pretty simple everything from like uh i've had some fun ones which i'll talk about in a bit but generally the one at the moment is like you go in you put your arms around each other you talk about what you've got to think about for the show um you know any changes any last minute changes who is someone injured okay that person has a sore neck have a have a bit of um awareness about that um and then we just put all our hands in and make up a chant for that night like a three syllable one some of my favorite ones in the past have been we had a peacock feather 
that we balanced on a table uh, and we had to keep it balanced by just using our breath. So, so blowing it in different directions. That was super fun. Mm -hmm. And one year, you know, classic opportunist, one year we were in Edinburgh and we were doing, uh, sharing a stage with a show that had heaps of uh, balloons. And so we just play a game where it's like, how many balloons can you keep up in the air? Like, and you can either do that with multiple people or by yourself or just with your hands or only with your feet or whatever. So generally, as long as you just spend some amount of time thinking like, I'm about to do a thing and it's exciting and it's serious and it is potentially dangerous, but also have fun. And that switches me on. I've seen you try and juggle like three balloons. It looked really difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah, good fun. I don't, I don't um, behave like you want them to. No, no, it looked, it looked like quite a workout. Actually, I, I want to try it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so, it's one of my favorite warmups. Like if, if I'm like, oh, not to do. If there's a couple of balloons around, just blow up some and then just try and keep them in the air. It's yeah, very simple. But very good. Yeah, you don't have to think about it at all. Yeah. And what about? at the end of a training session, do you, do you do anything there to cool down, like down, regulate, reflect? Uh, no, <laughs> it's one of those things like they always, it's, we always should cool down and I feel better when I cool down, when I do a little bit of like self massage or um, a little bit of stretching or just something, but uh, I don't do it. I don't do it that often. Something I should do more. <laughs> and what about uh, in terms of creative sequencing and flows? What do you normally, like we talked about it a little bit before in terms of like starting to integrate it with other skills, but maybe when you're constructing a certain flow or getting people to start learning how to construct their own sequences, like how, how should we go about it? Yeah. If, you're talking about someone learning how to sequence tricks. Um, that isolation, integration, improvisation is a great method of kind of like, um, once you can, I can give you a few sequences. Once you have the tricks, I like to give people a sequence that I know works. And I'm like, we're gonna learn this sequence, like dance choreography. We do this, and then we do this, then we do this. Because you'll find, um, there are a few really nice ways to make transitions between tricks work. The most simple way is either you will extend one trick or you will cut it off um, early. There's not very often that an interesting sequence between two tricks will be, I do all of trick A and then all of trick B. To make it interesting and flow together, you've often got to either chop in or elongate. So I'll, I'll give some set sequences that I, that I think have satisfying transitions. And you might do that for a little while. And then I will give them a task, like you're going to use these movements and make your own sequence, uh, your own transitions. Um, and I can either give them an order, like I want you to do trick ABC, or I can say, these are the tricks, make up your own order. Um, so, and it's just then it's like just being aware and trying and failing. And the best way to do it is not when someone isn't watching you, like, it's really hard to be creative and free if you've got someone looking over your shoulder. So I really like to do that as a put on some music you like, go in a room where you don't feel observed and, um, and have, a, have a play and just try a few things. Film it. Filming is a really useful tool. You'll often see something from the camera that you didn't feel at the time. And that was, that was a big part of my early um, sequencing training was filming that night I'd go back and watch it. 
I would write down the sequences that I thought were good and, and like add in the bits that I'd seen and thought would work and then go in the next day and, and kind of develop them further again. Uh, then you could, there's some fun games you can play once you know all the names of tricks um, and you have a common language with someone, you can get them to, or even if you don't, you could just write down a bunch of tricks and get people to read them out randomly. And you can kind of just be like, this is once you're a little bit more comfortable with everything. Um, I say, all right, I'm going to say Kate Winslet, bear crawl, cartwheel, reef nut, um, you know, etc. And mm-hmm. And you've just got to keep moving that you doesn't, doesn't matter how you're moving, just trying to keep something moving, even if it's just like a finger into the next thing. Um, so then it's kind of the way I like to think about it is, like when I asked my smart brother, my doctor one, I was like, oh man, how did you learn? How did you start learning medicine? It seems like a really intimidating big field. And he said his way of learning anything, the first thing you have to do is learn the language. So you actually understand what you're talking about. And then you can start, um, you know, then you can start to understand it and, and kind of get more in depth. And I like to think about creative sequencing, like language, like words, like I'm not, thinking ahead too far of the words that I'm saying to you in this conversation, but I've got a big pool. I've got, mm. uh, <laughs> I've got a big vocabulary um, <laughs> that I can dip into and I've got kind of rules of syntax and grammar and I've got default phrases and things so that I can just talk and things make sense. It's kind of the same with acrobatics. You want to have a large vocabulary. You'll have a few defaults that you can, you know, your trusty, reliable fallback options. Um, so yeah. I hope that that ramble answers your question. Yeah, it does make sense. I think it's like you can have these external stimulus, such as someone telling you what to do. And then that takes some of that thinking away from you, right? Because then it's just like, okay, like this person's deciding for me, which I always find like the hardest at the start, especially when you're trying to do these new moves, right? Because then it's like too much like thinking sometimes you're like, oh, um, but then on the other side, I think it's as you start getting more in your pocket as well, then you can always turn back to familiar positions or moves to keep on flowing as well. But then what's hard about that is trying to break out of those habits. Yeah. Yeah. And so once you have established, you you recognize that you've got a default, it's good to kind of go back and, and crack that open again. Um, and try, try, try and find a few more options from there that can, that can become your new defaults or, or new exciting transitions. And that's kind of one of the, the other tools. I said it before, but I think it is really useful. When you learn a new trick, connect it with a bunch of things that you already know and immediately that will give you a few kind of ideas and you'll start to find some transitions that are easy and some that are hard. Um, I really kind of going back a little bit to falling at all angles and being safe. I also like to have entrances to tricks from any angle. So like if I, if I finish a trick and I, my weight has caught me, I, you know, I haven't got quite enough momentum to get to standing. I'm just going to let that happen. I'm going to go back the other way and I've got an option there. Or if I'm, I'm off balance this way, I'll do this. If I'm directly on balance, I've got a lot more options or so. So again, it's having options and knowing that you have uh, safe and interesting places to go. And what about this notion of injecting your own style into sequences as well? How do you go about that? It's a good question. I'm not sure yet. Uh, I think, I think that's 
where putting on music you like and playing in a room is good. And maybe just not, not looking at Instagram so much. I, I feel like that might be part mm. of it. Like I've really seen that. It's like the, the more people put online, the more it all starts to look the same and the more boring it gets. Um, so it's a really good point. I think it's like, instead of that, you can go out there and just film yourself in your own environment. That could be your Instagram, right? The self Instagram yeah. and then just start noticing what you can play around with there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it can be a double-edged sword, right? Because you can get a lot of inspiration from looking around at the peers around you, right? But then it, maybe at some point then as well, you do have to just go, you know what? I'm just going to go on my own I, now. I think the key there is to look at a, a broad variety of stimulus. It's like, don't just look at movers and movement. Look at dance and like, and by dance, I mean break dance and ballet and contemporary and tap and jazz and traditional Russian dance, like steal from everywhere, borrow from everywhere, get inspired from everywhere. And then the bits that you take and try will naturally look different on your body and kind of, yeah, celebrate that and enjoy that rather than just seeing one person or one style of movement. And where do you like to look for inspiration these days? Mm. Kind of gone through different phases. I've never done skateboarding i've never been a skater but i i find skating to be uh inspirational a lot of the time and break dancing like break dancing is as i said before it's the ki- style is king like that's a huge one but it kind of everywhere a little bit of capoeira a little bit of dance a little bit of um a few circus movers and and people who i think are borrowing from a bunch of different places um yeah bjj has been interesting like now a lot of the time i um take things you know it's like you you learn about whatever you're you're in so a lot of the things i think about now are bjj related and how to move across the floor without using your limbs and um or with extra pressure or with someone trying to stop you that kind of stuff and how has your application of your body being in BJJ, I guess, from this extensive physical training that you've done before into this new field. How are you finding that? Oh, I love it. It, It's almost like the anti-circus is how I've been describing it. In circus, you're always trying to support and help and balance your friends. And in BJJ, you're trying to off balance and disrupt and surprise um, your friends. So it's the other side of the coin. Um, And there's a few habits that I, find it really hard to break like being light um, or helping people or being comfortable in the air. These things that aren't useful generally in BJJ. Um, But I found that my biggest um, asset has been movement in BJJ. Like that's, that's the thing that um, I can surprise people with and has opened up a lot more doors is being comfortable, moving, inverting, cartwheeling, surprising people because I feel really comfortable in scrambles um, but I mean, I'm still a white belt. It's still very early. I still get absolutely smashed by most people. Um, but that's really fun too. It's great to be a beginner again in a, in a dip. I've, I've, it's that thing you dip a toe in a water and suddenly you realize how big the ocean is. And it's like, I can totally see how people dedicate generations of lives to this because it's, it's nonstop and so vast and so broad. So I'm really enjoying kind of starting that uh, journey. Yeah, it seems it must be really interesting for you, right? Because in one field, you've been involved with that for so long, right? And then with this, 
as you mentioned, it's like you're down at the very bottom of the food chain and that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's where you got to start. Yeah. 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 It's good. It's humbling and it's um, exciting. So I wanted to finish off just with a few rapid fire questions um, and say, I'll just ask away and, you know, yeah. just whatever first comes to mind. So what's your favorite book? Oh, the Phantom Tollbooth. And why? Uh, it taught me to love words and it, it kind of was, uh, yeah, taught me that, that the world is, can be a fun place and you can play. And next question, where is your favorite place to train and practice? Mm. That's hard. I don't have one. I don't think I have a favorite. Somewhere it's where it's warm. <laughs> the moment I'm in Tasmania, it's freezing. All I can think about is the cold. <laughs> do you have a place at home to to practice? I do. I have a, a space upstairs. I, I'll give a shout out to uh, to Gom, uh, the Gravity and Other Myths crew in Adelaide, and say their new space, the Forge, is is probably right up there. That's a great space. Nice. And favorite snack? Uh, dumplings. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. And finally. What's your favorite favorite style of music to to train to? Hip hop. Ah, nice. <laughs> yeah, break dance roots coming through again. Any particular era or style? Uh, I've I've got a soft spot in me for like uh, Australian hip hop, Blissinesso, because that's what I listened to a lot when I was at circus school. So that kind of brings back a lot of memories of kind of the beginnings of uh, a whole bunch of things. Um, but also Jurassic Five, um, uh, Loyal Kana is a new, and Mac Miller have been two of my new favorites. Uh, yeah. The, the hip hop that is honest and humble and clever rather than gratuitous. Mm, yeah, nice. Nice, Louis. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those insights today. Maybe just to cap it off for the listeners out there, what are your movements going to be for the foreseeable future? I'm guessing, you know, you're very much going to be focusing on home life, but other than that. Yeah. Home life. I'm, I'm open. I'm dabbling. I'm experimenting with how much I want to teach and how much I want to have a little break from stuff. But I, I, I thought I wanted a break and now I think because I found this, this other aspect in teaching, I'm a bit more excited about that. Number one priority, being a dad. Um, that's kind of something I've wanted for a long time and I'm really excited about. It's, yeah, it's really, really nice. Uh, so that's number one. And then I think, ask me again in six months and uh, we'll see where my brain is then. But dabbling, teaching a little bit, experimenting. And for all those who might be interested in getting in touch is the best way through Instagram to contact you or do you prefer something else? Yeah, Instagram's probably the easiest. It's just my name, Louis West. Um, yeah, you can YouTube everything, as you said, is is a little bit outdated, but the stuff's still up there, so Instagram's easiest. Well, you do look very, very happy in this new phase of your life, so enjoy it, mate, and I really appreciate you sharing this time with us today. Thank you very much.
Awesome, guys. That's it for today, episode 52, starring Louis West. I really appreciate Louis for taking the time out of his day to join us for this conversation, especially because he is a new father. And I know during that time, it's very hectic time. So really appreciate him sharing that time and space to share his perspective. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. For all those who are interested in finding out a bit more about his work, I really, really highly recommend you check out his YouTube channel, which has a lot of old clips from back in the day. I'm talking 10 years ago of Louis performing just outrageous, outrageous tricks, flips, using his body in all these different ways. It's very inspirational and I hope it fills you with a lot of new ideas. All right, guys. Well, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast, listening all the way through to the very end. I really appreciate it. If you have any comments, questions, feel free to reach out to me either on the website, that's on the passivehang.com. You can jump in onto the active hang forum and send me a message there. Otherwise on Instagram, that's at Fayon P at P H A O N P. And yes, send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. All right, guys. Well, that's it for today and I will see you in the next episode.